Hello, and welcome back to our latest installment of Eye for an Eye. We are your hosts, Julia, Lisa, and Matt, and we are here to determine whether the punishment, or lack thereof, fits the crime. Due to the graphic nature of some of the topics we will be touching on, listener discretion is advised. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Nah, I'm just kidding. That's a line from the Dark Knight. We're your hosts. The Laffer and iPod. Y'all don't know. That was Jules coming in on the background, harmonizing all beautiful like we the heck. As I said the other day, I think it'd be a great backup singer. I, I think that's a great aspiration. Hey now. Hey now. This is what dreams are made of. Why did we sing that karaoke? That is a good nice song. That would have been a good one. That would have been a great one. We back. Jules, you want to tell them what we're talking about? Yes. So tonight we are talking about Bill Hartman. And this is a sad and short case because we're getting right into the nitty gritty. As I'm talking about Phil, I'll tell you how I got worded this case because Phil Hartman, to be completely honest, was not a name I was super familiar with. Phil Hartman is an actor and a comedian. To me, he is known for his role in the holiday movie, Jingle Away, a classic. Jules, he is kind of familiar to a lot of people in our generation without probably even knowing it. Tell him who he is in Jingle All the Way because these people are all going to be like, Right, so he is the next-door neighbor in Jingle All the Way. He's like that annoying... The weird dad. The annoying, weird dad. What I realized today as I was going back through and listening to some stuff is that his voice is a lot more familiar to me than his name is. We were watching Jingle All the Way, and Zach had brought up to me that Phil had passed away, and I'll go into those details later. But he was also very famous for his time on SNL. He spent eight seasons on the show, which to me seems like a lot. He also co-wrote Wee's Big Adventure and made reoccurring appearances on the TV show Wee's Playhouse. He also spent seven years doing voice work on The Simpsons. His voice, when I listened to, was something I didn't realize I knew. Not trying to discredit Phil's other work because I know he had other popular work. Um, just trying to put him into perspective for people who might not know him. Those are probably... Some of his popular or more well-known works. Phil was born in September of 1948. His family was living in Canada, but they moved to the United States when Phil was just a child. Phil really made it big when he joined the cast of SNL, and that was in 1986. Though, of course, Phil loved being a celebrity, he also enjoyed being a normal guy and had a boat that he spent a lot of time on and just was really... Everyone who knew him described him as a really great guy. He was really down to earth despite his celebrity status. And he was just a really good guy. He was not very lucky in the love department. He was divorced two times before he married his most recent wife, Bryn, who was a former model and aspiring actress. The two got married in 1987. The couple had two children together, Sean and Virgin, Phil absolutely loved being a father. He told many friends that being a parent was what brought him the most joy. Generally speaking, the couple seemed normal. They had ups and downs, as every couple does. Based on what he told family and friends, Phil had never been happier than he was in the mid-1990s. So 
He has all of the success doing voice work, doing regular acting. He's just a big, funny guy. He had a wife and children, so he was really living his best life. Some say I'm a big, funny guy, too. <laughs> he isn't big. I, I'm being like big personality, and you are not big either. So that's I, big was just, I don't know, not. Are we also not going to point out the fact that you're not a guy? <laughs> <laughs> I might be. I'm changing my Instagram name to BFG. Big funny guy. Big funny guy. Big funny guy. Unfortunately, things were not as happy as Phil maybe was portraying them to be. Phil and Bryn were having issues, and some of those started to chip away at the image of this happy little family. Bryn was struggling with drug and alcohol use. She'd be on a bender and then stop. She'd use again. She was in and out of rehab, which I know. In no way am I trying to victim blame, but obviously that takes a toll on a marriage for both partners. In that same regard, Phil was kind of emotionally withdrawn from the relationship. That was something that was cited in his other marriages as well, because like I said, he was divorced two times before he married Bryn. Bryn was his third marriage, and that was something that was stated by some of his ex-wives, that he was kind of emotionally withdrawn. Because of his work, he was often absent from the home, which can take a toll on a marriage. A lot of the responsibility for child rearing was, you know, put on Bryn. Bryn had a short temper and some believed that she was jealous of Phil's success as she was still trying to make it in the acting world, which is a hard world to break into. Phil did try to make introductions and bring Bryn around. He did an interview with Howard Stern and brought her on the show. In his opening montage in SNL, he's sitting at a diner and there's a woman at the table with him and it's Bryn. Bryn originally like turned her head so that her face was visible in the clip and the director told her no, she had to keep her head forward. It wasn't really about her. Some believe that she may have been jealous. Steve Small, who was Phil's lawyer and close friend, told the LA Times that Bryn was having trouble controlling her anger. She got attention by losing her temper. Phil said that he had to restrain her at times. There were some issues that the couple was dealing with that started chipping away at both of them. There was a lot of emotional baggage. In the late 1990s, as Phil and Bryn's relationship began to deteriorate and Bryn spiraled deeper into the depths of substance abuse, friends and family had no idea about the violence that was about to erupt. So... We're jumping right in. The crimes that took place happened on the night of May 27th, 1990. Bryn went out to dinner with one of her friends, who would later state that Bryn seemed to be in a good frame of mind. She wasn't visibly upset. It was just a normal dinner that they had. When she returned home, Bryn and Phil had gotten into an argument. Phil was apparently angry with Bryn from a previous incident where she had hit their daughter while she was under the influence of alcohol. Phil had threatened to leave his wife if she began to use drugs again would cause further harm to the children. Basically, he put an ultimatum in place. I can't trust you with the children if you're going to be using drugs and alcohol, which is a very reasonable thing to say. That seems sensible. That wasn't a quote from him. That was just the general consensus of what was happening. He was argued, um, he was upset with her from a previous incident. Phil then went to bed, which was a common argument diffuser. I guess you could say that he used because, like I said, the couple was fighting. 
pretty frequently. And so rather than go back and forth and bicker, Phil went to bed. Between 2 and 3 a.m., Bryn entered the bedroom where Phil slept and fetally shot him once between the eyes, once in the throat, and once in the upper chest with a 38 caliber handgun. Bryn was currently taking Zoloft, had been drinking alcohol, and had recently used cocaine. The placement, I guess you could say, of the shots are very interesting. I would like your feedback on that because I'm wondering if she was kind of just shot into the dark in the general direction of Phil and happened to shoot him in those spots or if it was more of a calculated choice. She could have shot him in the foot and he wouldn't have ended up dying. But in between the eyes, I feel like that's a really hard shot to make if you're trying to make it and an almost impossible shot to make if you're not eating. That's what I would go with. I'm so curious because it says that she was at Buca di Beppo and that is famous uh, Italian food. How did this bitch have any energy to wake up and kill somebody? She had two Cosmos, but she was a former actress. So she was on coke. Or excuse me, a former model. And a stop marrying actor. So I don't think she was eating. She went to Buka yeah. and had family style ice cubes. No, I think this was calculated. Like you said, Jules, between the eyes. Right. That's so, so it's like. How? There's no way you're shot in the dark and perfectly got him right between the eyes. It sounds like these were kill shots, to be honest. She shot him right between the eyes. It's like it's the, the, throat, the chest. She aimed for all the main organs. The, the brain, the jugular, the heart. Right. That's what I'm thinking, but I also feel like that adds a whole other level of just sadness and tragedy. Matt, what are your thoughts? I mean, I agree. Honestly, it definitely makes it, but I feel like in, in that lifestyle, and I'm not just targeting models or actors, but I feel like it really is like you're living a different type of life. You're on a screen for a living. You're trying to make your profile the highest. They look at those little things. And I think that's sometimes what I've, I've said it before. When we talked about OJ, like being in that public persona makes people a little different, makes people a little crazy. I swear, like I not met any A-list famous people, but I have family that live in California who have said that they have met very famous people. And they've said that like, they're all just a little different. They all think a little bit differently than we do because they don't have normal lives. They're constantly being looked at. They're constantly being assessed. We feel like we are every day by like a group of like 20 to 30 people, our colleagues, our family, our friends. They are every day by millions of people being looked at and being scrutinized. It makes people a little bit, I want to say like on edge is probably my first thought, but also probably just a little bit aloof a little bit above everything. And I don't know, I think that makes you a little crazy sometimes. The more we hear about cases like this, that's, it's just reinforced for me. This case goes on to get crazier, unfortunately. It's basically a straight line between the eyes and throat and in the chest. Seems like she was a pretty, pretty familiar with a gun. I think our resident nurse made a great point. She went for all the kill shots. Everything that you would do to kill somebody and make it quick and painless or quick and bleed a lot right because you know her entire quick scene. and dead <laughs> the brain right. was dead oh yeah well that's right just a yeah. quick knockout yeah, yeah. she yeah. wanted to ensure that he was not getting up 
Yeah, unfortunately. About an hour after the fact, in the meantime, Brynn had drank more, and she called her friend Ron Douglas. She was hysterical, and Ron told her to go back to bed. Instead of doing that, Brynn drove over to Ron's house, and it was there that she confessed to the murder. Possibly due to Brynn being prone to dramatics and manic outbursts, Ron didn't believe her. She shows up at your doorstep. The shots took place between 2 and 3 a.m., so this is after that. She calls you in hysterics, is drunk. She shows up to your house and confesses to murdering her husband. He didn't believe her. He wanted her to kind of like... Middle of the night, yeah. You're like, what have you been drinking? <laughs> right, right. So he kind of encourages her to sleep it off for a little bit and just kind of like regroup. The two then drove back to the Hartman residence separately. And on her way, Brynn called another friend and confessed again to the murder. Two confessions, that's a lot. They arrived to the house and Ron saw Phil's body and called 911. At that point, it was 6.20 a.m. Police arrived to the house and escorted Ron and the Hartman's two children from the house. That's an awful aspect of this. Another detail was that the children were in the home at the time. How old were the kids, Jules? Um... I know one of them was six at the time, and the son was older, so I don't know if he was six and the daughter was younger, or the daughter was six and the son was a little bit older. But they were at the home. The police escorted Ron and the Hartmans um, from the house. Unfortunately, the authorities were too late to stop Bryn from barricading herself in the bedroom where she laid next to Phil and took her own life with the gun she had used to kill her husband. It was said that the son was out of the house in time to not hear the gunshot that killed Bryn, but they believed that the daughter heard the gunshot, which is just awful. Bryn's sister and brother-in-law went on to raise the heart and children. Real nitty-gritty here. I have some theories to discuss, and I have some discussion questions as well. I want to jump to a discussion question first because... First and foremost, I find murder-suicide so frustrating because there's so many people impacted. Think about the two events separately. If someone was murdered, obviously you're dealing with grief. You might feel angry at the person that did it. You might, I don't know, like there's a plethora of feelings you could feel. Suicide, same thing, right? You obviously are upset. You might be frustrated that the person didn't feel that they could speak to, I don't know. Whatever, there's a lot of feelings involved. And then putting the two together is just awful. I think about the children who went on to live very normal lives. Brun's sister and brother-in-law raised them outside the whole Hollywood realm that we were talking about before, Matt. I thought that that was a good thing for them. There are a couple of theories about this. And one involves the SNL curse. So I have a short video that I wanted to play. With today's tragedy, Hartman becomes the fourth member of the groundbreaking comedy show to meet an untimely death. John Belushi died of an overdose back in 1982, Gilda Radner of ovarian cancer seven years later, and more recently, funny man Chris Farley, also of a drug overdose. What I think is so wild about the SNL curse, which I don't know how much I believe in terms of Phil Hartman, but I do think we could do a whole episode on this. One thing that I thought was important to note was that Phil and Chris Farley, who had very intertwined careers on SNL, died about six months apart. No way. Yeah. So 
Chris Farley was in December of 97. And then Phil was May of 98. I was scrolling through the comments and somebody said in Phil's case, he was murdered versus Belushi and Farley were overdoses. So I don't know. First of all, like, what do you guys think about that? And also in another spiral, what do you think about things like the 27 Club? We could do a whole other episode. But what do you think in terms of like an SNL curse? I've never heard of that. I didn't either. I think Belushi and Chris Farley were both, unfortunately, heavy drug users. If you're using heroin, you can potentially die. I wanted to include that video clip as a talking point, but I think in the four deaths that they highlighted, two were overdoses, two were more of like, quote-unquote, natural causes. Phil was, you know... Murder doesn't... Right, but... I I Not true, but... Right. I'm just over here trying to figure out what the fuck you guys are talking about with murder being a natural cause. No, I don't know if I believe that that's a curse. I do find those kind of things very interesting. And when we launch our new series that we've never figured out, we're definitely going to have to dig into it more. It is creepy when a lot of, especially high-profile deaths, but a lot of deaths happen around the same thing. Like the exorcist had a curse, the poltergeist had a curse. It is very interesting that all these people were interconnected and all of them met a similar not similar fate but they all passed away all of them tied to snl that is very strange because like that thing where they say everything happens in threes when people die they die in threes this is fours <laughs> yeah i don't know i had never heard of the snl curse i found that video clip and i thought it was interesting it will be a good discussion point. Another discussion point. Bryn's brother-in-law went on to sue Pfizer, the manufacturer of Zoloft, claiming that the drug prompted Bryn's behavior. Though Pfizer stated that the drug was not responsible, the family did receive a payout. That's something also I want to discuss because... Yes, she mixed Zoloft with cocaine and cocktails. Exactly. That's why I want to dig into this further because I don't know why Pfizer paid them out. Probably to get her to shut up to me a hundred percent. And that's what I think it was because like if you know you were I would try to take on Pfizer and they would tell us to shove it up our ass. Like she Zoloft was an antidepressant. Like she was depressed before she was on Zoloft. So Well, right. And like Lisa had mentioned, and that was gonna be the point I made, she wasn't following the instruction. <laughs> you know, just because you own scissors, you stab someone to death with them. You know, that's not the intended use. You weren't supposed to mix right. it with every other drug on the planet. Yeah, I'm going to sue because I took 37 Tylenol <laughs> and doctor will not be you're supposed to take. Yeah, that's not on the Zoloft instructions. Actually, they probably would have had a case that Zoloft probably says somewhere on its packaging, like, don't fucking do cocaine with me and don't drink. Yeah. I think to your point, Lisa, the payout was more because it was a high profile case. I also think like maybe in his grief, the brother-in-law was just kind of grasping at something to blame. And sometimes it's it's pay up and shut up is a better way to fight something than argue it. Because if you argue it, then like we were talking about, you get more publicity on the case. It gets you bad reputation really quick. Yeah. And I don't remember what the amount was that they were paid, but in terms of a huge company like that, I'm sure it was like chump change. I'm open to any questions y'all have, but I did want to 
go back to my point about how frustrating murder suicides are and in that regard of looking for someone to blame there really is you know like there's no one left to sentence and so we don't have our typical like eye for an eye discussion of sentencing i was curious on your thoughts of like if Bryn had not gone on to kill herself what do we think an appropriate sentence would have been Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Life, life, murder. Like she was, it's not self defense. She shot him three times while he was sleeping. She was definitely unhinged when she did it because she was on drugs and definitely down some alcohol. Obviously, what what would she have argued? Her like battered wife syndrome, or is she like depressed and violent because of that? I'd be curious to know. Fame made me crazy. My husband was more famous than me. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I think the Zoloft argument could have come into play more if she did survive and, you know, could say that she was misusing her medication. Shit, Zoloft should have sued her. That's not how you're supposed to take our medicine. (laughs) Nightmare. A sentence that would have been appropriate had she not ended her, her own life would be same as any other murder conviction i would have liked obviously like you said jules i personally hate unsolved crimes i hate when a crime ends in murder suicide i feel like you never get answers like the current gabby petito case ended with brian laundry apparently being found dead of suicide and that's frustrating because i mean yeah they say there's a journal out there that has like details but like you don't get answers. There's no closure for anybody. You're just stuck with this horrific crime with a lot of questions and no answers. And I like answers. I don't like guessing. I don't like having to piece together what are my thoughts. I want you to tell me why the fuck did you do this? What in the world made you do this? And it almost seems like in this specific case, just because it did end in suicide that maybe she either felt immediate remorse or maybe she really genuinely was like I don't want to live anymore but I'm not going to let you have the satisfaction of moving on without me so bye so you you said something Lisa that made me think of this one detail that I don't know why I didn't include but I have pulled up because I think it goes to show Britain's state of mind Obviously, she had a lot of issues. She did try at points to make choices to better her life. She, you know, tried rehab, whatever. When Phil and Bryn had their first son, one of Phil's previous wives just sent them a card, you know, something like congratulations, whatever. And this is a quote from one of the ex-wives. She said, I got a letter back that was hair curling, fury, rage, and a death threat from Bryn. The gist of it was, don't ever fucking get near me or my family or I will hurt you. 
I never want to hear from you. Never, ever, ever come near us or you will be really sorry. And that was like many years before because this was when the first, when their first child was born. It sounds like she was an abusive woman to him. Yeah. Is what it fully sounds like. And unfortunately, and I think this is underreported because of the way society thinks men should act. I don't think abuse is reported enough when it is done to men because, you know, men are always told to like be tough and, oh, come on, our girl can't bully you, blah, 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 all this stupid shit. And I think because of the shame and guilt associated with that and, and also just the typical signs of abuse, right? You're, you're gaslit, you're abused into a corner, you're isolated, you're screamed at. I think it wouldn't have been the first thing on Phil's mind to bring up and say, hey, like, she's losing her mind. But it sounds like based on how she's reacting to everyone around her and, like, that you can kind of tell in the clips of her that she was losing her patience with the fact that her husband was famous and she wasn't. And maybe that's not the full reason, but it does seem like this was not an isolated event, which makes me sad. Right. I had mentioned that he had to restrain her. I don't know how physical the abuse may have been, but it definitely seems like she was verbally abusive, which is, you know, can be equally as damaging. Yeah, it sounds to me as though this wasn't obviously an isolated incident. Sadly, again, it goes back to what I was originally saying about just that lifestyle is so different and living that type of life that high profile, I'm sure, just weighs on people. But it just seems to be it was overwhelming. It's a shame. Well, I almost don't think it's overwhelming in the fact that she craved it and wasn't getting it the way she wanted it, right? It sounded like she wanted the fame and the fortune, and she was very upset that that came easily to him and not her. Because it even says, when you look up the case, it says that she could not find work, and he tried to get her work on multiple occasions. It sounds like he tried to help her. It just wasn't landing because she's fucking, she lost it. Right. This is by no means to say that Phil was a perfect person. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, nobody really had anything awful to say about him. But I'm not trying to say that either that all of Bryn's frustrations were, you know, just completely outrageous. He's an actor, so I'm sure he was out of the house a lot, which can be frustrating to be the only one caring for your children. Even if he wasn't working, he still did things that brought him out of the house that added to her frustrations. It's also interesting that, that a lot of people witnessed this. Like, it says he was friends with Joe Rogan, and Joe Rogan told him to leave at least five different times but because of his kids he wanted to stay and make things work and stuff it makes you think that they must have observed something heard something seen something that made them concerned and say get out it's not worth it it's not worth yeah whatever this stress is it's kind of sad that it's like too little too late it does make you wonder the murder suicide part of it if she just wanted him dead it's very interesting yeah I did, yeah. Like, Boy, do they make me mad? Like you said, I'm like, I want answers. I want concrete. This is what happened. This is why. Yeah. Matt, to your point, I did confirm the children were six and nine. So the daughter was six and the son was nine because he is older. So 
very young ages, it seems that they were able to make the best of their lives after what happened to them, which is awful. Just to carry your point about murder suicides, one thing that I think is so frustrating is when someone kills someone, you almost want to lay the blame at their feet, but then it's like, for whatever reason, it always feels to me like after they did that, they couldn't carry on their own life. That's so sad to me. Like, yeah, the ultimate, like, I just can't deal with this anymore. I can't, whether even if it's in anger or in a sense of protection or a sense of sympathy that they kill somebody, it's like, wow, they really just gave up. Yeah. In one of the videos that I was watching today, because I literally went on a, a spiral, it was someone from Stella's family, and I don't remember if it was a brother or whatever, but they were kind of stressing the point that we don't blame Bryn. We don't want Bryn to be this evil person in all of this. Like, it was obviously clear to the family and to their close friends and stuff that she had issues and, and they impacted the marriage. It's just unfortunate that instead of deciding to divorce or seek help you know doing right you know whether it's couples therapy or x y and z that it ended the way it did but phil's family was very much and maybe not all of them but they did make statement to say we don't want Bryn to be this evil person it does seem also that she struggled for a while with substance abuse problems yeah because that's what he said when he tried to get her acting roles that she was pretty heavily reliant on alcohol and narcotics, which made it hard for people to hire her. Yeah. It prompted several rehab stints. So that does alter your chemistry. That does alter the way you react. It does alter your rationale. And if, again, she's also on Zoloft, that's also something else on top of it. I'm just curious, did her family really have no clue? Not saying that they really had much pull on what happened. Like they can't, like you can't 302 someone or whatever unless which is involuntary, commit them in PA, but I know it's other things, other places. But you can't do that unless they're a definitive threat to themselves or to others. Well, so that's what I was just going to say. Think about the fact that what we know is that Bryn and Phil were arguing that night about him wanting her not to be around the children if she was going to continue to use drugs and alcohol. So maybe she felt like he's going to take this away. Great, you're not going to take my children away because I'm going to kill you. Those, I think that's probably it. That probably is what pushed her over the edge. If I can't have them, neither can you. Well, right. That's what I would love to know is, did she act out of regret when she killed herself? Like, oh shit. Or was it more like you said, if I can't be around the children, either can you? I don't know. It's, it's I think uh, to me personally, I feel like it was more of a plan, right? It was more like, I would go to jail for the rest of my life and be away from my kids. I don't want that, but I also don't want you to be around them and take them away from me. So enough is enough. That coupled with depression, narcotics, alcohol, you're not thinking like a rational person. And it's interesting. I'm learning about all of this currently in my behavioral class. Not necessarily this specific, but like depression, mania, bipolar, anxiety, everything. Being a sociopath. It's very interesting on a nursing level, how you deal with the patients, but on a human level, just how that stuff, because I don't know about you guys, but I always, I, I know you guys probably want to shoot me in the face yourselves when I send you 67 articles about murder. But do you remember the one I sent where the guy 
heard voices that he was like a QAnon conspiracy theorist. I was trying to find it actually today if he was diagnosed with any sort of mental instability, but I couldn't find anything. But basically he killed his children with a spirit gun because he believed God like told him that the world was going to end unless he killed his kids. So he took his kids to Mexico and his like babies and killed them with a spear gun. Anyways, my thought is I always think this and I know it's it's me trying to rationalize the irrational, which I kind of feel like is what I'm doing here, which is why I bring this up. But I always think in these type of cases where mental health may play a picture or play a part or even substances, like if you were hearing a voice telling you the world's going to end, kill your kids, wouldn't you think that you'd be like, nah, like, no thanks, like, cool, cool story. I'll let the world end, I'm not killing my kids. Obviously, again, that's me trying to rationalize irrational thought. And like these people who go through these psychoses genuinely seem to believe what they're saying and what they're doing is what was meant to happen. I just wonder how it ends up like, oh yeah, I have to, like, that's the only way. I think even people who kill random people on the street because someone told them to do it, even that is a lot for me to process because, I, I mean, it's, I don't know. I, I just don't know how you can rationalize murder because someone told you to do it. Right? It's like those chain emails, right? <laughs> when, when we were younger, it's like, forward this to 20 of your friends or we will kill your cat. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jules, that's so good. No, right? I, like, I, that's what I, I like. Take that out because that is so good. That's I don't so understand that delusion. So I don't understand when people use that to rationalize murder. I just don't, I don't get it. I think again, it's right. me just trying to rationalize I'll irrational. Yeah I'll, yeah. I'll never understand what it's like to be completely out of your mind. I've said it many times before. The human mind, when it's untethered, is the most dangerous weapon on the planet. I mean, people can come up with some crazy, like taking your kids to Mexico and killing them with a spear. I've not heard that one. Don't you worry, the articles are coming. Oh, I mean, that's, we hear about them all the time. I mean, you know, people who recruit children to be soldiers in a cartel or in an army or in a rebel, like, it. It's just, there's so many things that you're just like, wow, how, how depraved can people really be? Yeah. There's a lot of cases that I don't understand. And this is probably one of them. And it's very sad. It's sad that this is yeah. the way it ended. And the only thing we can really pull from a case like this, really looking for those warning signs. Because it does seem like people saw something was up. Something wasn't right. And I'm sure nobody on earth expects the next step to be murder. I 100% I understand that. So I can't say like, oh, they should have stopped her because she was going to kill him. Like, absolutely not. That That's ridiculous to say because you would never assume. But I honestly think this, this day and age, you should start going there first. Rule it out. Let's rule out that she's going to kill him and then go from there and figure it out. Because the worst thing you could do is be silent and then look at what happens. And then you look back and say, oh, fuck, I saw 67 signs. I told him 13 so times. I probably was thinking too much about it. He's having a life with his kids. I mean, he probably knows. It's just. Well, apparently he did because he told her she was never going to see them again. So clearly he knew it was escalating to a point that was getting out of control because she was 
acting erratically with the kids. I meant that she would kill him. Like, that she would do that. I wonder, though, like, man, I do wonder if he had that thought run through his head. He's seen how she can escalate. He's seen the threats she's made to other people. How's if he thought that, though? To protect his kids. But then you, I mean, I guess you would think, like, he'd take the kids and leave. But you never know. I mean, maybe he, like, had the inkling but never thought she'd go through with it. Do you think even when he told her that, he ever mentioned that she killed him? It's hard to say. I'm not blaming him, but I am saying everybody around him. I think just in general, from being a true con buff myself and all of us, as we say all the time, see something, say something. And I know there's only little stuff you can do, especially if someone's being abused, whether you witness it or not, because unfortunately the way laws are, and I understand why, because you can't just start throwing people away without the key for really like, no reason or with no evidence or with no whatever the party's not wanting to prosecute but it is really frustrating that with like domestic abuse cases and stalking cases like it feels to me they have to be like an inch away from death or to actually die for anything to happen i know in pa specifically i don't know the last like word by word but essentially if you know someone's being domestically abused and you report it and they deny it, then the victim can get in trouble for the false report and wasting the police's time. And then I know a lot of the times victims of domestic assault don't want to report it because they're so under that control that they think it's going to get better. But it is hard because you, you just want so bad for there to be a way for you to put a stop to these things before they happen. When people all over the place are like, leave this girl, she's going mad. You are even considering it yourself because you're trying to take your kids out of the situation. I think it's just frustrating that time and time again, we sit by and there's like really nothing we can do. But I guess that is kind of human nature of it, unfortunately. And that's the way laws work. You can't just like throw people away with no reason or rhyme other than suspicion. But I do think more should be able to be done if you suspect domestic violence, like more investigation should take place because too often like we saw in the gabby potato case the police even stopped them separated them for the night and then he got back together and he killed her immediately the reason the police were called in the first place was because i will do the case in full for sure because someone reported seeing him hit her in broad daylight they didn't even investigate that part they saw a scratch on her face and like who hit you and she was like we got in a little scuffle and they're like okay bye you're the abuser but like there has to be more that people can do to prevent things like this from happening, you know? And I am kind of interested because the murder-suicide took place in their house, correct? Like, her suicide, she lay down on the bed next to him. And the police were there at that moment. So I guess she barricaded herself in there. But why wasn't she immediately detained? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. And I also wanted to point out, the article I read said it was the same gun, but then I was listening, as I told you, to like a million videos today. And it said that it was a different gun. So just a tidbit there. But I wanted to also point out at the top of the episode, and I should have, that we didn't really have a sentence to debate because there wasn't one, unfortunately. There's a, more of an ending. So I don't know if I call it a blind eye, but just like. I think a blind eye to me, even though most often it's unsolved crime, is just crime that doesn't have a sentence. Like there's nothing to debate. Although, let's talk about it. Do we think Solov should have paid them out money to shut them up? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But hey, 
I actually wanted to answer that question. I'd say no. I agree with Jules' point. It was probably just because it was such a high-profile name. What a good case. I mean, it's very sad. And it's, again, it's just one of those cases where I wish we could do more. And hindsight always feels like it's 2020, which is why I always like to end these episodes saying, see something, say something. Like, even if it's an insignificant report, just having that documented is so important. Yeah. But, but legit, we were watching all the way. We were talking about the neighbor guy. And he was like, um, yeah, he's dead. I'm pretty sure his wife killed him. I was like, excuse me. Back it up. We got a true crime podcast. What you saying? Let us know what you guys think. What was the motive? Did she really mean to kill him or was she shooting in the dark? I mean, I think we can all say that she was in there with the. I think she turned on the light and then maybe turned them back off afterwards. You know, that kind of thing. A sharpshooter. Yeah. Character. But it's very sad. And if you or anybody you know is in a domestic violence situation, we will post resources in these show notes so everyone can get up. Jules, what an interesting case. I love cases like this because, like, yeah, he was a famous person, but, like, I never heard of this. You should listen to his voice. Like, he, like I said, did some Simpsons work and then just, like, some of his characters. Ask Zach if he knows any other obscure murders from history. Or if he knows any, like, serial killers again. Yeah, he just has these little nuggets that he, like, decides he's going to, you know, throw out. Well. It's a really good story. Phil Hartman's part of the stories, obviously, that I'm talking about. But, like, I never knew that that connection, that this guy, of course had a tragic end i've seen him in snl clips never realized it was the guy from jingle all the way <laughs> i think that's a hilarious coincidence and of course back would know that yeah <laughs> uh, but it is tragic though that Bryn must have had some real demons to do what she did for sure for sure but a very good case I appreciate this response. thanks y'all yeah, hell yeah. I thrive off of cases that are new and exciting. And not, well, that sounds horrible. That are lesser covered. Because, like, it does get old to hear the same damn case covered over and over and over and over again by every podcast you listen to. Although some of those are great. Some of those are fun to listen to because people have fresh takes, fresh theories. But I like cases like this where I don't hear about it all that often and it's new for me, which means I think it will be new for some listeners as well. It's new for me, and yet in some ways familiar, which I think is really cool. Well, that was... <laughs> Bye, everybody. It was a good episode. Rate, review, subscribe. I am tired, about to put my pants. So uh, it's time for me to log off for the night, get some shuttle. <laughs> Yesterday, I went to sleep at 7.30, so it's two hours past my bedtime. <laughs>